name is Ari Garfinkel, and I am the president of the Yeshiva University Medical Ethics Society, and it is my honor to welcome you all to this medical ethics edition of the Center for the Jewish Futures Kolo Yom Rishon, sponsored by Jake and Karen Abelevitz in memory of Jake's parents, um, Eliyahu Ben Abba and Leah Bas Abram. The Medical Ethics Society's main goal is to provide thought-provoking and engaging programming for the students of Yeshiva University, as well as the members of the greater Jewish community, and to urge them to think about how we as Jews must treat these special topics. Today, we are privileged to hear from two remarkable speakers who will share with us their unique perspectives in the medical and halakhic fields. Today's topic is prenatal genetic modifications, which means allowing parents to have the ability to choose the traits of their unborn child. With the rapid advancements in the medical world, it is imperative to speak about these topics now so that everyone is aware of the different perspectives as these technologies may become standard in the very near future. Our speakers will each provide a perspective of their own. Dr. Joshua Klein will be presenting the medical perspective and Rabbi Mordechai Willig will speak from an ethics and halakha point of view. Our first speaker, Dr. Joshua Klein, graduated with honors from Yeshiva University and received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. After earning his medical degree, he was selected for the prestigious and Harvard Integrated Residency Program in Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology, and then pursued subspecialty fellowship training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Columbia Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Klein's research interests include fertility treatments for older women, the biology of reproductive aging, fertility preservation, and IVF outcomes. He has authored numerous scientific research articles, book chapters in leading medical journals and textbooks in the field of reproductive biology. He served as the medical director at Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York's Brooklyn office before starting his own practice in 2015. Drawing from his many years of clinical as well as research experience, Dr. Klein will inform us all about prenatal genetic modification, what we can do now, and what we hope to do in the future. Thank you, Dr. Klein. Thank you, Ari, for that uh, flattering introduction. And thank you uh, more broadly to the uh, Medical Ethics Society. I am a YU grad myself class of 2000. Can you hear me? Sometimes better without the microphone. Is that better? No. Okay. <laughs> Scary. So I want to thank Ari. I want to thank the YU Medical Ethics Society. I'm a YU grad, um, and uh, it's nice to be invited to speak. Thank you. Um, I actually went to elementary school, to grade school in this building when it was called Mizrahi Lebanu. So uh, it's a homecoming here, um, so it's nice to be back. Um, I also want to thank uh, uh, the opportunity to speak uh, at the same occasion, the same podium as we're willing. It's obviously an honor and a privilege, and I'm sort of not worthy of the, uh, of the opportunity, but it's not the first time, and uh, uh, my goal is for it not to be the last time, so uh, with God's help, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to accomplish that. So um, I'm not a geneticist. I'm a fertility doctor, um, and so, it is amazing to me how much 
over the course of just my own training and clinical experience, and I'm not that young, but I'm not that old, how fertility and reproductive medicine has really shifted in the direction of genetics over the last, I'd say, two decades, probably more, but especially in the last two decades. And so this topic is, is um, quite relevant for reproductive medicine, it's quite relevant for obstetrics and gynecology, and it's just a really fascinating topic for society and for ethics and for halakha and Torah too. So um, I'm going to take the next 20 minutes or so. Sorry. I like to be free. I'm going to take the next 20 minutes or so, maybe 25 minutes, to um, outline uh, broadly some of the medical ways that we have the opportunity in 2016 to influence the genetic traits of our offspring. Um, the specific title of the session is Prenatal Genetic Modification, but I think it's worthwhile and important to talk more broadly than just modification because that's the future, but the present is mostly in uh, selection of genetics. And you'll see what I mean as we go through, so let's just get into the slide. So we'll go to the next slide here. So this term designer babies is obviously sort of provocative, but I think is useful. Um, the picture on the slide was the uh, cover photo from uh, The Economist, <coughs> Economist magazine. <coughs> The Economist magazine in 2015, I forget which month, um, talking about you know choosing IQ, choosing hair color, choosing strength, and, and uh, I don't know what else is on there, uh, but choosing the traits of our of our our children. Um, this is less medical and more philosophical. Maybe we'll talk about it um, more at, at sort of the discussion part of the session. But. To some degree, choosing the traits of our offspring is certainly built into what we do, regardless of any fancy science. You know, we choose or we uh, try to find a mate that has qualities that will help us, hopefully, besides having a happy life together with that spouse, but also um, raise a family and have children that represent certain qualities that we find um, desirable or that we are interested in, in seeing ourselves propagate. And so I think it's be unfair to not recognize the fact that to some degree, there's there's a selection of traits of children built into the way humans reproduce to begin with. But beyond that, so I broke it down into basically two sections. There's selection techniques and there's intervention techniques. Um, the selection techniques basically means that we're not proactively changing genes, but rather using kind of a loophole method to influence the genetics of the child that is actually produced. And there's a few manifestations of, of that approach. There's sperm sorting, there's PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and there's PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening. And we'll walk through those, uh, walk through those each of those uh, relatively briefly, because the more sort of intriguing, uh, uh, potentially, part of the talk is the intervention techniques, which are newer, um, and again, largely sort of for the future rather than for the present. Um, and they include mitochondrial donation, which is a minor topic, and then gene, edi gene editing, which is the more major topic, and that's the one we'll spend the most time on. <coughs> so next slide, please. <coughs> so sperm sorting is a technology that's been um, actually patented since the 1980s, and it's limited to choosing the gender of a child. So um, every human being has two alleles, two 
genes for gender, either an XX or an XY. This is probably familiar to most people in the room. XX means you're female, XY means you're male. An egg cell, the gamete coming from the female always has an X because a mother has two Xs and so it can only give an X. The male can give either an X or the Y and so the sperm is what determines the gender of the child. You can, in a laboratory, take a sperm, a sample of sperm and using something called flow cytometry, which is basically a technique that is deriving from the fact that the density of DNA in sperm with an X chromosome versus sperm with a Y chromosome is different. You can fluorescently label the DNA, kind of expose them to a chemical, excuse me, fluorescently label the sperm cells, which that's a photo um, in the bottom right there. And Microsort is the kind of brand name of this technology, and like I said, it's been patented. But you can fluorescently label sperm and then run the sperm through a flow cytometer, through a machine, and the machine can see how much labeling is going on that's dependent on the density of the DNA and can sort the, D the sperm into X sperms and Y sperms. It's not perfect, so 70 to 90% accuracy, um, but it works somewhat. Um, again, this is a method that's limited only to gender. It's useful for, specifically in the medical context, for some X-linked diseases. That means that some diseases which genetically ride on the X chromosome, which means that if a, so a, a woman has two X chromosomes. If she has a mu, uh, mutation on an X chromosome, she has another X chromosome to compensate for that, and she typically won't manifest the disease because it's on the X chromosome and she has a good one. A man only has one. So if a man has a mutation on his X chromosome, he will be sick or be affected with the disease because he has no other X chromosome to compensate. So that's the concept of an X-linked disease. So if a family knows that they are carriers for an X-linked disease, one way not to pass on that disease to a child is to just have girls, because the girls may be carriers for the disease. They'll get one bad X chromosome, but they won't be affected because they'll have a healthy X chromosome. So this would be a method that would be somewhat effective to prevent the transmission of an X-linked disease. I say somewhat because, like I said, it's only 70 to 90% accurate. That's Point number one. Point number two is that it's actually not available in the United States. The FDA has not approved this technology, even though it's been around for 30, 35 years. Um, it's not 100% clear to the public why, but partially because it's not um, perfectly effective is certainly part of the reason. So if you go abroad, if you go to Mexico, you can do it, but um, not in the U.S. Um, I'll say if you think it's important to ask the question now, I, I love questions, but in the interest of time, I'll say maybe hold questions unless you really think it, it's crucial for right now. Okay. All right, next slide, let's keep moving forward. So selecting genes by PGD. So pre PGD is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So PGD is kind of a big step up from what I just described. What I just described is sorting sperm, and then I didn't mention before that you can use those sperm through a pretty basic procedure, what's called an insemination procedure, to take sperm with a catheter, put them inside the woman's reproductive tract, and then try to achieve pregnancy. So it's not... Uh, I mean, maybe that sounds fancy. It's not that fancy. It's not that difficult. There's no anesthesia. There's no, like, super fancy lab. You can just have, like, a regular lab with a microscope and get that accomplished. PGD is a lot more fancy. So PGD, first of all, the concept is that if we know that there's a gene, a genetic uh, trait, which we're looking to identify, and by saying that, 
one crucial point is that it has to be a genetic trait that we know how to identify in the laboratory. We can make fertilized eggs through the IVF process. That's the first box on the, on the left side of the slide. So IVF, in vitro fertilization, means to use medications to cause multiple eggs to be developed all at once and then take those eggs out of the woman's body with a surgical procedure. So let's say you have a woman, you give her medication, it takes about two weeks and she makes 10 eggs. So now we have in the laboratory 10 eggs sitting in petri dishes. We can then fertilize all 10. And statistics being what they are, if this woman or, or man for that matter carries a genetic problem, so some of those fertilized eggs will get the genetic problem and some of them won't. So what we can do is take those fertilized eggs and the second box there is embryo biopsy. A fertilized egg develops into an embryo. That's just a sort of more mature form of a fertilized egg. You can biopsy the embryo, take a little piece of that embryo without hurting it. And since at that stage all of the cells are sort of the same, and certainly in general the DNA in every cell of the body should be the same, you can take that biopsy, send it to a genetics lab, that's the next box there, genetic analysis and go looking for the genetic question that you've been interested in and then you get answers for each of those embryos. So like I said, if you have 10 eggs and you made 10 embryos, you get 10 biopsies, you label them really carefully and you send them to a genetics lab and then you get a report, sometimes a day later, sometimes a couple weeks later, but you get a report that says embryo number one has it, whatever it is, embryo two doesn't, embryo three does, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the final box on that slide is embryo transfer, which um, once you have the information you've been looking for, you can choose the embryos that are that have what you want or don't have what you don't want them to have and use those to achieve a pregnancy. So again, this is another instance where you're not modifying the genetics at all. You haven't intervened to change the genetics, but what you can do is preferentially identify the embryos which inherited the genes that you want, or the opposite, the ones that you don't want, and include or exclude the ones that are uh, uh, that are desirable, and then basically shift the possibility of pregnancy only to the embryos that have the desired genetic component. The accuracy of this technology is unbelievably good, so greater than 99% accurate. So for example, if you have a couple who are both carriers for a genetic disease like Tay-Sachs, so Tay-Sachs is a recessive genetic disease. You could be a carrier and you wouldn't know it your whole life because it doesn't make you, doesn't affect your health in any way if you're a carrier. It means you have one copy of a bad gene. The other copy is normal and the other copy uh, uh, compensates for it. So you wouldn't know unless you get checked for it. Now you get married um, and for whatever reason, if you haven't gone through Jewish genetic screening or Bonio, uh, excuse me, Dori Charm or some gene uh, screening program, and you're already married and you, uh, and you realize that uh, you're both carriers. So in this instance, there's approximately a 25% chance that this couple will have a child affected with Tay-Sachs, which is a pretty devastating disease. So this is the classic situation that doing IVF with PGD, with genetic diagnosis, would be useful for this couple. They could just have children naturally and it would be rolling the dice to some extent. 75% chance that each child would be healthy, 25% chance that it would be sick. It's actually, if you want to parse that down, of the 75% that would be healthy, 
50% would be carriers, but carriers are healthy, they'll worry about it when they want to have children. Um, so basically it's, it's a statistics game, but by doing PGD it's a lot of work, it's a lot of effort, and it's a lot of money. Um, and just to give you a sense of that, the, the work and the effort is usually a couple consultations with the doctor and then a sort of two-week process of medications and a procedure. Um, the money part, it probably runs about $15,000, most of which is often not covered by insurance. Um, but if you're in that situation and you have the resources and the energy to do it, you can basically achieve a greater than 99% confidence that the, when you do get pregnant, the baby is not going to be sick. So it's a pretty powerful tool in the right context. All right, go to the next slide. Oh, so I covered most of this, I think, already. So PGD has been around since 1990, so it's not actually that new. The specifics of the technology, especially of the tools that we use for genetic analysis have changed um, as genetic technology has advanced in the last couple of decades, but the concept of PGD and its successful application is not that new. Um, like I said, it's super accurate, over 99%. And the, the bullet point, um, the fourth one, says it can be used to identify monogenetic, monogenic disorders or balanced translocations. That means that you can't uh, do PGD for something that doesn't have clear genetic basis. So for example, if you wanted to do PGD because you love blonde hair, that is impossible in this day and age because there is no, the genetics of hair color are not simple enough and well described enough to be able to do a genetic test in the lab and see which embryos are blonde embryos and which embryos are not blonde embryos. So despite the sort of power of the approach, it all lies in the power of the, of the or in the, I shouldn't say in the power, but it all lies in the uh, specific genetic context of the question that you're asking. Something like Tay-Sachs is a specific gene that we understand relatively well. That can be tested for very directly. Um, other things, intelligence, height, um, other sort of more broad uh, susceptibility to heart disease, even, you know, not just uh, purely elective things, but even more complex medical questions, the genetics are not simple, or at least not yet, and therefore PGD is not um, useful. Um, I put a picture on the side of this slide. Uh, it's uh, an advertisement for a movie that came out, I think about five years ago, called My Sister's Keeper. Um, and that's based on a book um, that came out several years before that. So the idea of that movie is that there have been many cases now where a family has had a child affected with the bone marrow disease, cancer, um, and they need a bone marrow match and they can't find one. The idea of matching bone marrow is something that does derive from genetics, which is why typically family members who have close genetics are the ones who are the most likely to be matches. But if you can't find a match, the idea is that you can make embryos in the laboratory using IVF, and some of them, if you're lucky, will be a match, and then you can preferentially use those embryos that are a match to create a child who's sort of kind of being created with the purpose of being a savior sibling, of being able to be a bone marrow match for their sibling. And this has been done not just once but many times, and it works. Um, certainly, you know, again, leaving out the, 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 the uh, Jewish and Torah and Halakhic aspect of it, because that's what I'm going to leave for a bullet, but even just the, uh, you know, Agnostic medical ethicists uh, uh, spend a lot of time and uh, have had a lot of gray hairs sort of toward, uh, teasing out the, the ethics of creating a human being 
sort of for the purpose of saving another human being um, without their consent, so to speak. Um, but anyway, it's interesting. There's a, a lot of other things at PGD, a lot of other questions. Um, I put up a couple, a couple other ones there. BRCA is, I think probably most people in the room have heard of it, is a gene that predisposes to breast and ovarian cancer. So it's not a debilitating, crippling disease. It's not really sort of a disease itself at all. Um, but it is a predisposition to disease. So is it ethical to exclude embryos from their potential life by testing for BRCA because they may have a cancer susceptibility or maybe those embryos should be given a chance and you shouldn't be looking for something that isn't sort of a crippling disease. Um, we can talk about that more uh, later on, I guess. And then the final thing there is, is more minor um, disabilities. So um, there are cases of families with familial deafness and in some of those families, that's considered sort of a family bond, the deafness, and they thrive uh, in, in their lives. It's obviously a disability in some way, shape, or form, but um, for those families, it's considered kind of that's the way life is in those families. And so is it okay to do PGD to screen out for relatively minor disabilities where some people would consider that not such a terrible thing to have after all? Um, anyway, I'll leave that there for now, but uh, lots of questions. Go to the next slide. So very briefly, PGS is kind of a twist on PGD. Um, PGS is basically pre-implantation genetic screening. And the reason I mention it is because it's increasingly important in the world of IVF. Even regular IVF, just for people who are having trouble getting pregnant, has nothing to do with genetic diseases. PGS basically means, I, I put the word generic, and that's not a typo, um, generic as opposed to genetic. It's generic PGD because it's not looking for a specific disease that the parents might have or a specific mutation the parents might have. But PGS is the ability to screen for things like Down syndrome that anybody can have. Most embryos that have, an, it's called an aneuploidy, it means the wrong number of chromosomes. So Down syndrome is the most famous aneuploidy. It's trisomy 21, uh, three copies of chromosome 21. There are lots of other aneuploidies. There are lots of other eggs and embryos that, are, that come into this world with the wrong number of chromosomes. We don't see most of them in the, in the world because most of the time those embryos don't make it to being a child. Trisomy 21 is the most mild aneuploidy and that's the one that we see most in terms of people in the world. Um, but uh, in the laboratory, when we're, we can look before they kind of have an opportunity to not make it, we see lots of aneuploidy. So um, there's a, a graph there, which I'm sure you can't read, um, but what that relates to is the frequency of aneuploid embryos relative to age. And I don't want to go down this road because it's a whole other topic, but probably the number one driver, not probably, for sure, the number one driver of why it gets more difficult to have children as women get older is because they are more and more likely to produce aneuploid eggs and aneuploid embryos. But even at young ages, even women in their 20s, the frequency of aneuploidy hovers around 30%. So a lot of embryos that we make in the laboratory find out they're aneuploid. If we can screen them out in the laboratory before we use them to try to create a baby, we can increase the likelihood that the treatment works, we can decrease the likelihood that there's a miscarriage, we can decrease the likelihood of Down syndrome. So PGS is a very sort of, at this point, routine and powerful tool that's being used more and more with just every case, or I shouldn't say it's not being used in every case, but being used in many cases of IVF, even ones that are unrelated to genetic problems. Okay, next slide. So 
that covers the sort of selection tools part of the uh, of the discussion meeting uh, techniques that are not related to actually intervening in the genes, but rather techniques that have to do with choosing choosing sperm that are X or Y, choosing embryos that have a genetic condition or don't. So the rest of the few minutes that I'll be up here, I want to talk about the intervention tools, um, which include mitochondrial donation and gene editing. So let's go to the next slide. So mitochondrial donation got a lot of press uh, last year. The phrase three parent babies uh, was, uh, was, was in the media a lot, and it's kind of a provocative term. What it means, basically, is that most of our genetic determinants come from the nucleus of the cell, the vast majority. But there's a structure outside, so the nucleus is like the nerve, is the brains of the cell, and each cell has a nucleus. But every cell has other stuff outside the brains, and one of those things is mitochondria. Most of us learn at some point, like in high school biology, it's the powerhouse of the cell. It's the part of the cell that sort of deals with the energy production. Mitochondria have their own genome, so they have their own DNA. So, if you take an embryo and take out the brains of that embryo, say, well, you took out the DNA. Well, you took out most of it, 98, 99% of it, but you've left the mitochondria, which is another one or 2% of the DNA, and if you now take another brains and put it into that cell, you could, you're now mixing one brain with one mitochondria. Okay, so let me be a little more clear about how that all works. So there are some rare conditions, rare genetic diseases that are mitochondrial DNA diseases, meaning that these are diseases where the genetic problem lies not in the brains, but the, in the nucleus, but the genetic problem lies in the mitochondria. So for these families, an effective treatment can be to create an embryo, but then to take the nucleus, the brains of that embryo, and put it into another cell where the nucleus has been removed and let it thrive in another cell that has healthy DNA. So that's what this figure is sort of illustrating. You have, you can sort of see, on the top left, the mother's egg has red little dots there. Those are not good uh, mitochondria. On the, underneath it is a donor's egg that has green little dots. Those are good mitochondria. And you can take the nucleus from the, from the unhealthy mitochondria environment, put it into the other healthy mitochondria environment, and then fertilize that egg and create a, an embryo and a baby. So this is a pretty limited application of genetic modification um, because you really have to have a reason to do it. In mitochondrial diseases, they're, they're um, devastating, but they're rare. Um, so it got a lot of attention, but this isn't something that is um, hugely applicable in a widespread way. Um, there was some work that was done in the 1990s that uh, theorized that when I said before about how older women and older, older, like women in their, let's say, late 30s and early 40s who are struggling to have a baby, maybe they'll benefit from having young mitochondria, young energy producers. And they did some work, actually clinical work, and actually made babies doing this in, in the late 90s until the FDA in 2002 basically said, like, this scares us and you shouldn't be doing this without sort of proper FDA clearance. And then they stopped uh, because there wasn't enough funding and um, it's tricky. So mitochondrial donation as a whole is, again, a sort of relatively limited application of this three-parent 
baby concept where you have mitochondrial DNA, you have the sperm paternal DNA, and you have the egg maternal DNA. Um, and it is a intervention that, uh, that affects genetics, but again, it's sort of its own limited application. So I won't spend more time on that one, actually. The next slide, um, that picture is a family of a, that young woman. Her name is Alana Saarinen. She lives in Michigan, and she was one of the first three parents. So they, they tested her DNA. She was, you know, born of this procedure, and she does have 2% of her DNA is from some donor from an egg that brought those healthy mitochondria uh, that is unknown to, to her. So it does exist, but it's, again, pretty limited. All right, let's go to the next slide, because that's sort of much more um, uh, interesting and, and uh, broadly applicable stuff. So gene editing. So gene editing basically means using biotechnology to edit genes, to actually change genes. Um, and gene editing is not a new concept. Um, I, this is sort of a timeline here. The first GMOs is genetically modified organisms. And uh, you'll see even in the supermarket, like, stuff that says no GMOs, right? Uh, people really don't like GMOs or are scared of GMOs, um, and maybe they're right. Um, but GMOs have been around for, for a long time now. Uh, the first organisms that were genetically modified were bacteria and then mice in the early 1970s. Since the early 1980s, bacteria have been modified genetically to exploit the possibility of using bacteria almost like a little factory to make stuff that we want. So in 1982, a company began producing human insulin inside bacteria. So what they do is they take the bacterium and they take the, you can take the gene, the sequence that codes for human insulin, and you can basically stick that gene into the bacteria genome, and the bacteria don't realize and now the bacteria are like, it's like a robot, and you kind of put a new program into the robot, and bacteria think that, because that's what their DNA says, that they're supposed to make human insulin, and they do. So, and you can raise huge colonies of bacteria to make huge amounts of, in this case, insulin, um, obviously for the betterment of, of, of society. So it sounds kind of scary, um, but it's not a new concept. It's been done for a long time, and there's a lot of good that comes from it. Uh, 1994, there was something called the Flavor Saver Tomato, which is a genetically modified tomato. I don't think that really um, succeeded, but it was a tomato that was genetically modified in some way to have a longer shelf life. And then coming closer to what, what uh, really is the uh, more direct topic, I think, for today is in 2012, a system called CRISPR-Cas9 was described, and I'm going to spend the next few slides describing what that is. Um, and then in 2015, it was the first and currently only report published of human embryos that were gene edited in the laboratory. Okay, so next slide. So well, gene editing is not, um, is not straightforward. Um, and like I said before, it's sort of been done since the early 1970s, but we're still like kind of talking about it now as like a new thing. And the reason is because it's not straightforward. So it's historically been difficult to accomplish successfully in the laboratory. It's been expensive, and it's been inefficient. And inefficient basically in two basic ways. Um, inefficient, if you want to stick a gene into an organism, a lot of times it doesn't work. So it doesn't actually attach into the genome, it doesn't attach into the DNA, and so it's a failure. There's another way of it being inefficient, though, which is that by playing around, by putting, trying to put in a piece of DNA here, it might end up going in in a different place in the genome, 
or might end up messing up some other gene, so you can get what's called off-target off effects. So even if you succeed in putting in that piece of DNA where you want it, but you may have other effects that came from your playing around with the genome that uh, were not anticipated and that can be um, not desirable, not healthy for the organism. <clears throat> and the last thing about uh, gene editing that has been challenging is that is that uh, older techniques only allowed the manipulation of one gene at a time, and many biological processes require the simultaneous action of multiple genes. So if you're stuck working on one gene at a time, it takes a long time to be able to accomplish something uh, in the laboratory that works in a sort of a potent way. All right, so CRISPR-Cas9, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Um, yeah, don't test me on that. Uh, what's that? Yeah, it's, it's, on the, it's on the paper. Yeah. Um, basically, what happened was there were some scientists that were studying bacteria. Nothing to do, actually. They weren't genetics researchers. They were microbiologists studying bacteria. And what they found was that bacteria have a very primitive but very powerful immune system. To defend, to defend themselves against viruses. So in the diagram, the green blob is a bacteria cell, and those little spider things are viruses. What viruses do, their whole sort of purpose in life, their whole existence in life, is spread their DNA. So they'll sort of latch on to a bacteria cell, and they inject a little piece of their own DNA, which can then integrate. They're, they're actually gene editors. They send their DNA to integrate into their uh, the, the organism they're attacking and integrate into their genome. So bacteria don't want the foreign DNA from the virus to, to uh, integrate to their genome. So basically what the bacteria have to defend themselves is this CRISPR mechanism. CRISPR basically means that once the bacteria has seen that particular virus DNA sequence, it remembers it, and it has another protein that acts as a pair of scissors. So basically, in that, in that diagram, the memory are like the blades of the scissors in the red and the green, and the blades of the scissors are, the, are a protein called Cas9. And the idea is that the scissors don't really know where to cut, so you need the blades to kind of drive them to cut intelligently. And so the bacteria have this memory system to be able to code for the, the, the handle of the scissors, and that will guide the cutting for the future. So that the next time that uh, the same virus shows up, it recognizes the DNA sequence of that virus, and it creates those scissors that have blades and it has handles, and it's, it snips up the DNA, so it cuts it up before it can before it can uh, attack or before it can integrate in its own genome. I don't know if that's a great explanation, but it's the closest I could get to something that sort of made sense, and I will be. Um, sort of uh, confess for the public here that I'm not a geneticist, and even for me, this is uh, who am I? But it's not—it's not a simple uh, thing to be able to wrap your mind around. But that's basically the idea: is that it's a intelligent DNA cutting system. So what these microbiologists sort of these are like these, you know, eureka moments when you're looking at one problem, and all of a sudden you realize that what you're looking at can actually help you in a very different way than you imagine. What they realize is that if we can harness this whole system to make blades that can cut DNA with handles that can drive the DNA to specific places, we actually have a tool 
to intelligently cut DNA when, where and when we want to. And that's what CRISPR-Cas9 is. So it's basically a molecular tool to be able to intelligently and precisely cut DNA in certain places. Uh, go to the next slide, please. This is another illustration sort of um, without the viruses around, but more in terms of the gene editing. So, um, Cas9 is this yellow ball, that's the, that's the scissors. The guide RNA, that's the handle of the scissors. So if you have the handle of the scissors and you have the blades, you can now take this piece and throw it into a cell that has its own DNA, that's the blue DNA, and you can program the handle to cut wherever you want. So you can now choose a gene, let's say this is, this is a, a mouse genome. You can choose a gene in the mouse genome and create this little handle on the scissors to go to that particular gene, and then throw in this whole thing here with the mouse DNA, and that can cut the mouse DNA in a very specific location, and if you add into the whole mix here a replacement DNA sequence, another piece of DNA that you want to stick in there, so once you cut, this DNA will actually just pop right in. So basically, you can cut the DNA where you want to, you can add in a piece of DNA that you want to pop in there, and essentially, at the end of the day, you have the ability to edit in a somewhat precise way uh, the genome of an organism. Can you go to the next slide, please? So CRISPR-Cas9 is a system that is, again, it's hard for me to be able to say with a straight face, but scientists who work with it, anyway, say it's easy, it's much less expensive, it's much more efficient. You can work with multiple genes at once because you can create lots of these little scissors that are targeted to lots of different genes at the same time. Uh, one analogy that, that uh, I heard used is that using CRISPR-Cas9, it's like you just have to program a new app, which you could say that's not so easy to make a new app, a new piece of software. But until now, it was like building a whole new operating system every time you wanted to change one gene. Now you just kind of write a piece of software and you can change whatever you want. Next slide. So um, this is just a, a, a screenshot from an advertisement for a lab that's advertising like a kit to do CRISPR-Cas9 in your lab. And I just want to highlight the last line, which is that, there, in their words, the CRISPR-Cas technology has made gene editing possible for any lab at any budget and expertise. So just think about that for a minute. Like, that sounds great if you're like selling the kit that anybody can do this, like do it at home. But this is a hugely powerful and scary technology. And basically they're like, any idiot can do it. <laughs> Um, a little scary. And actually, the next slide. Um, so, there is on the internet, if you're interested, a, five minutes. Um, there is on the internet a place you can buy for, I think it's $160, a do-it-yourself uh, genome editing kit um, so that you can do it at home at your kitchen bench. Um, so, again, it, it, the reason I highlight this is because it's an amazing tool, and in terms of the ethics of it, it's scary because it's so sort of powerful and apparently easy to work with. So I'm just going to run through the last couple of slides. Um, this is just an illustration of how um, quickly this technique has grown. Um, again, it was first described in 2012, and in the last three to four years, it's been used across different species in, um, in mice, in monkeys, in plants. Um, and then again, in 2015, there was the first report of of uh, human embryos, they will get to that in one second, that'll be the last point. Next slide. 
So on the left you have an experiment they did with dogs. This is from China. All these um, really uh, scary things are coming out of China right now. So um, on the left, the left dog was uh, genetically, the, the right dog is a normal dog. The left dog is a genetically modified dog. To, uh, it's a modification of the myo, myotonin gene, I think it is. It's a gene that has to do with muscle development, and it's like Superman dog. Um, on the right is another uh, image from another uh, study that was done with pigs. You can't see this clearly, but these are like really muscular pigs. Um, so this is this is real, um, and this is being done now. Next slide. Um, and this is the uh, paper that I keep uh, referring back to. Again, came out of China in April of 2015, um, editing genes in human zygotes, uh, which is really human embryos. One thing I'll point out is that on the bottom you can see it says received March 30th, accepted April 1st. So usually in an academic journal there's a review process that can take a few weeks, a few months. In this journal they accepted it um, within 48 hours after they received it, which just shows you the degree of sort of excitement and interest. Um, also people called into question how carefully they edited it or reviewed it before they published it, but um, it's definitely something that is a pretty hot hot subject. Um, this is a summary of their experiment. It didn't go well, so they uh, used 86 embryos. Those embryos were not viable embryos, so they didn't have a chance. They were abnormal embryos they got from an IVF lab. And they got 86 embryos to work with, um, and basically none of them were successful. Um, some of them didn't take up the gene. They were trying to edit the HBB gene, the hemoglobin beta gene. Um, which relates to the disease beta thalassemia. So some of them didn't take up the gene properly. Some of them did, but they had a lot of other uh, a lot of other problems. And essentially, it was kind of not a very successful experiment, um, but interesting nonetheless. Um, and then the next slide is that headline is from the New York Times from February, just uh, six weeks ago or so, or eight weeks ago now, um, that Britain has uh, specifically kind of approved some more research to be done in human embryos, not for clinical use, but for uh, research uh, just as of last month. All right, next slide. All right, so um, that's pretty much what I wanted to cover. The selection techniques we talked about, those are sort of uh, amazing, but not that amazing anymore. Um, and then the, the interventional techniques, which are kind of up and coming and uh, not, um, not yet there, but it's probably a question of if and not when. Um, this last slide just has some of the principles of medical ethics, again, that has nothing to do with Judaism um, per se. Well, I guess that's something to do with Judaism, but um, there are a lot of, of things that um, genetic editing brings up in terms of, you know, uh, the child obviously has no say in all this, um, so that's something that, that medical ethicists don't like. Um, is it a risk-benefit analysis of, like, if you have a disease, is it justified, but if it's elective, is it not justified? Or maybe this is kind of crossing a line that's too far in terms of, you know, the playing God thing. So um, again, medical ethicists are struggling a lot. Um, but I'll stop there and I'll uh, hand the podium over to hear more about the total perspective. Uh, from over there. So, 
I'll answer the question, but I also want to step down and I can answer questions afterwards. But just uh, to that question. So basically, they have to create a sequence, which isn't that difficult for molecular biologists, that becomes like a tag. And they put that tag on. Basically, the CRISPR-Cas9 is like literally the scissors. And then they tag the scissors with whatever gene you want. And then you can just throw it in there, and it goes to where it needs to go. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Klein. That was very informative. My name is Rebecca Garber. I'm also the president of the Medical Ethics Society. It is my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Mordechai Willig, um, who is from Yeshiva University. He's the Rabbi Dr. Sol Roth Professor of Talmud and Contemporary Halakha. He has been a Rosh Yeshiva at the Yeshiva Program Metzger School of Talmudic Studies since 1973 and a Rosh Kola at the Rabbi Isaac Elkanan Theological Seminary. Rabbi Willig has served as spiritual leader of the Young Israel of Riverdale in the Bronx, New York, since 1974, and he is the author of On Mortify, which came out in two volumes. And he has authored many articles in Torah scholarship journals. Rabbi Willig is the deputy of Avbeistin of the Basin of America, and he has been an outspoken advocate of the halakhic prenuptial agreement as a preventative measure against the creation of Agunot. Rabbi Willig received a BA in mathematics from Yeshiva College in 1968 and an MS in Jewish history in 1971 from the Bernard Rebel Graduate School of Jewish Studies. And he received a smicha from the, that same year uh, at Reeds. It is my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Willig. Try it this way. Thank you very much. Dr. Klein and I have partnered in other uh, forums. We spoke about uh, freezing eggs. This topic I find to be more controversial. And since there's almost nothing been written on it, I decided to speak to you initially about the whole idea of IVF and primarily in my first part about maternity. As you heard, there's a new idea of having three parents. This idea was suggested long before the recent developments in a somewhat different context. And it is we're now able to have maternity divided. When a child is produced naturally, the mother does two things. She provides genetic material, we'll call them eggs, as it's called colloquially, and she also carries the baby. What happens in a situation which a woman, we'll call her the wife in this context, is unable to perform one of those critical functions. This is not science fiction. This is, at least in part, almost could be called mass of the Yom. There are many women who, for whatever reason, are unable to have their own genetic children because their eggs either don't exist for a variety of reasons, there's something called Turner Syndrome. I'm not going to the medical details, I'm not an MD. There are no eggs. 
can she get married? Who's going to want to marry a woman when there's no possibility of children? From the perception of halacha, who's allowed to marry such a woman? We are taught in the Mishnah, the Sefti of Amos, that a man is not supposed to marry a woman who cannot produce a child. Part of the mitzvah of Puru, frankly, the real mitzvah of Puru, is getting married to a woman who has the potential to produce a child. So is this woman doomed, doomed to remain single, or perhaps limited to a man who cannot produce his own children for his own medical reasons? That was was done until now. Found a man who could not have children of his own, and a woman who could not have children of her own, and we believe very strongly in the overarching importance of marriage. Going back to Lotol Bayosa Adam Levado in the biblical description of creation, irrespective of the possibility of procreation. However, there's now technology known as a donor egg which is used in conjunction with the IVF you saw before on the screen. The IVF process is helpful in producing children with the genetic material of the husband and the wife when there are certain technical issues in terms of the ability to produce that child which can be overcome by IVF. And there are numerous children running around in our yeshivas today who are the result of that IVF between the parents. Father and the mother, the husband and the wife couldn't have the child naturally. With the, the magic of IVF, they're able to have children. However, the same technology can be used if the woman's eggs either don't exist or are unable to produce a child. Or, in an extreme case, a case in which the genetic material of either spouse is, again, not only unable to produce a child, but sometimes the child that will be produced will be genetically doomed. The child can be doomed to an early death or morbidity of various levels, various degrees. And here too, the situations in which instead of using IVF and PGD, which was described earlier, some cases you know in advance it's not going to go but you'll have a donor egg or donor sperm so donor sperm is not the topic for today this is an ancient dispute going back to the time of Moshe Feinstein and the Rebbe. not so ancient but uh, goes back 50 years when they, were, they began with the introduction of sperm donations for a couple where the husband could not father a child and Rabbi Feinstein per- permitted it, and Rabbi Satva Rebbe considered it to be the equivalent of adultery, and in certain cases, if the sperm daughter was Jewish, he raised the specter of illegitimacy. That's an ancient dispute, relatively speaking, the way the halakhic world moves almost as fast as the medical world, in terms of its uh, controversies always coming up anew. But this is something new, IVF. Who is the mother? Is the mother the birth mother, or is the mother the genetic mother? An intriguing question. Isn't it intriguing? Fascinating. <laughs> it never happened before. It's just an unbelievable thing. Never happened before, right? Well, we'll see. Let's take a look 
at sources one, two, three, four, and five. I feel bad. I cannot produce for you source six as I wanted because, as we shall see, the Parish Hatur Al Torah is not available on the program that I was using to produce these sources. Okay. Everyone knows that Yaakov had four wives and it was a, a known number of twelve for the sons he would have. And Leah, who already had six, had she had another son, it would have precluded Rachel from having even two. And therefore she prayed, according to Rashi, source two, She'll have less even than the maidservants, Bila and Zilpa. His Talk about a miracle. In other words, according to Rashi's version of the miracle, there was a, a, a male embryo which by miraculous intervention became a female embryo and became Dina, enabling this is the standard. I'm sure everyone here learned Chumash and Rashi at one point in time. This is what you know about. But you look at source 3, which is the Targi Yonas and on the exact same post, you see a completely different version of this miracle. And I, I'll say in advance, those who pay careful attention to davening on Rosh Hashanah, maybe look in the English too, should know about this. But let's first see the version in source number 3. What happens? The first paragraph is the, the first line is the same thing as we have in Rashi. Okay? So what happened? Hashem heard Leah's prayer. And now we read the third and critical line. At the same time that Leah was pregnant, Rachel was pregnant. Vidina Talk about a transplant. A double embryo transplant. I don't think we can do that these days. If you can, in medicine of those days certainly couldn't. But once you believe in a miracle that Hashem can make a male embryo into a female embryo. You can believe in what might be termed a bigger miracle. That Hashem can transplant two embryos from Rachel's into Leah's womb and from Leah into Rachel's womb. It's exactly what it says in the Targum Yonason. Does anyone know what I'm referring to in the davening of Rosh Hashanah? Anybody here maybe a, an expert in tefillah? Okay, we're now in the month of Adar. We have another six months to Rosh Hashanah. But not too early to prepare. Look up when you go home in your mazer. You have the art scroll, it'll be easier. They have everything in English. You will find it in the Shachris service, the first day of Rosh Hashanah. There are three piyutim in a row from Rabbi Lezer Akhalir, the famous Python, the famous Jewish poet. But Avram, then about Yitzchak, then about Yaakov. The one about Yaakov comes right after Mechaya HaMesim, for those who know the way these, these piyutim go. And there you will see that the height um, that goes in alphabetical order talks about about 
transferring Uber the Betan Achos, Siluf Dina the Hosef Lahanchos. That's the rhyme. Which means it was a switch between Dina and Yosef. Exactly as the Tag of Yonis says. So it's in your, you, you've all, again, every shul says this. It's not one of those remote things. You've all said it that, I won't tell you how old you are. You've all said it many times. You're in Shul Rosh Hashanah, uh, first day in the morning, which most people are there hopefully on time, or at least on time for this part of the davening. But you probably didn't know what you were saying. For this Rosh Hashanah, you'll all know what you're saying. Okay, that's what it is. Okay, we'll say, so what? What's the bottom line? Which way does it prove? Here we find halachists arguing based on agadic material, which by definition is not necessarily dispositive, in opposite directions. Based upon source 4 and 5, and most primarily about the one that I can't show you, I have to tell you about that. Shimon's final son is labeled here, Shaul, the daughter of the Canaanites. What does that mean? Says Rashi, Ben Aknanis, Ben Dina. Shimon married Dina. Shenivala Liknani, who was violated by the Kanani by Shechem. Shehogu was Shechem, Lohaisa Dina wrote to Lotes. She was so embarrassed. Who's going to want to marry her? Achenishbala Shimon Shehisahena. Shimon swore he would marry her. Then she came out and they were able to save her and kill all the people in Shechem. What's the obvious question? What's the obvious question? How could Shimon marry his sister Dina? Even before the Torah was given, the fundamental incestual violations existed. How can Shimon marry Leah, Dina? That's the question. The Torah, in its parish and its Pesach, gives the answer. Says, look back in the Targum Yonason in Perak Lamed. There it says, that although Dina was carried by Leah Imenu, she was conceived by Rachel Imenu. And since in the pre-Sainaitic code of incestual relationships, it was limited to a situation of a full brother and sister, here, in effect, it was a situation they had the same father, but a different mother. Shimon was the son of Leah, and Dina, from this perspective, is treated as the daughter of Rachel. Wow. Leah carried her, gave birth to her, and according to the tour on this Pasuk, she's treated as the daughter of Rachel. So, if you like the tour, you have an amazing proof that we follow the genetic mother. If you don't like the tour, then to the contrary, Dina is known by Tete Dina Basleya, and you follow the mother who carried the child. Clearly, we cannot make definitive statements based upon agadic material, as almost all of our rabbinic scholars have noted. But it's fascinating to see how the agada can be pointed in two opposite directions, and in fact, it has been pointed in the two opposite directions by halachists based upon this Agadic material. We will come back to Agadic material at the end. Let's not discuss halachic sources. Are there any halachic sources which can teach us one way or the other which way it should be?
Should it depend upon the the genetic mother, or should it depend upon the carrying mother? Everyone follow me? Uh, is the question clear? Yes. It's a very clear and fascinating question. So there are two Talmudic sources, both in the Sefti of Amos, and here too, it's not completely clear which way it goes. As a matter of fact, the very first source I'm going to quote to you, which is sources and your on your seat, source six, seven, and eight, are utilized by halachists again in opposite directions. Let's take a look. Source six, Toshma, Shneachim, Tolim, Gerim. You have two twins who convert, were converted. They're not related to each other. Because when you convert, you're a new child. They're two twins. We'll call them John and Jim. What's the name? John and Jim. No, no, no. I want John and Jim for a reason. See in a minute? John and Jim. They convert. John becomes Yochanan, right? which is really John, it really is Yochanan. Jim, we can call him Yosef, okay? Call him Yosef. Yes, then I have two brothers, Yochanan and Yosef, and they married two sisters. We'll call them Sarah and Rivka. Why not? It's not fair, we already had Rachel and Leah. We'll call them Sarah and Rivka. Question would be if there'd be a relationship that one would have with the other's spouse. Let's say after one brother dies, and it's called. We call Ashes Ach. Would it be a violation of Kores, which it normally is, terrible violation or not? The Gemara says no, because since John and Jim converted, you have a, what's the principle? I'm another principle. I'll, I'll give you the first words. Gershin is Gaya. The three more words. Anybody? Kekatan Shenolad Dami. They're born again. <laughs> Please, they're born again. <laughs> they start all over again. And therefore, John and Jim were brothers, but Yochanan and Yosef are not brothers from the Lachic perspective. So therefore, if Yochanan should consort with Yosef's wife, there'd be no violation of Eshazah. Clear? Clear? Case number one. Case number two. This is complicated. What happens? A Jewish man lives with a non-Jewish woman and she converts while pregnant. And she produces two children. Names them Yochanan and Yosef. They can be neither chalitza nor yibam because they do not hail from the same father. Because the father has no relationship with either of them. Because when the father produced these children, he was Jewish and the woman was not Jewish. He's cut off from them. Nonetheless, there is a violation. Should Yochanan consort with Yosef's wife, be a violation of Kares as Eshesach, even though they were not conceived, if you will, as brothers, but they were born as brothers. Wow. This sounds like it's talking about our topic. Let's continue in source number seven, which is the same Guma on the next page. The general principle that there's no fatherhood with respect to a 
non-Jew. Mitri is just chosen as a, as a random example. Not because we're not sure who the father is, but they're promiscuous. No. Even if we know who the father is, doesn't matter. How do we know? Shnei Achim told him. Two twins. The Tivaka is We know for sure the father is biologically. Nonetheless, Lo Koltsim Yadmin. There's no Chalitza Yibum. Shmamina Afkure Afkir There's no relationship between a non-Jewish father and a Jewish woman to, with whom he lives. And that's why there can be no Yibum or Chalitza, even though biologically both of these sons hail from the particular uh, Jewish man who had these twins to a non-Jewish woman who subsequently converted while she was pregnant. Got it straight, Tofa? Now, what does this indicate, this Gemara? At first glance, what does this indicate? Apparently, apparently, we see from here that the status of a brother with respect to Ashes Ah takes effect when? At the moment of birth. At the moment of birth. It can't be at the moment of conception. After all, Gershin is Gaier, Kikotan Shinola Dami. Therefore, we see it takes place at the moment of birth. On this basis, there are those who conclude from this communic statement that it's the birth mother who's the real mother. In the case of a donor egg, therefore, if, for example, the donor is not Jewish, which is the average case, it's harder to find a Jewish donor egg, the child who's born is not Jewish and has to be converted to become Jewish. Technically speaking, in such a case, if it's a boy and they do a bris, the bris could not be done on Shabbos, and even the bracha which is recited should be a different one. This is a very complex halachic question. However, look please in source number 8. Source number 8. Rashi, on that Gemara says, when we do not apply that principle, what's the example? That phrase which was found in source number six, which means it was a conversion during pregnancy. So Rashi says, contrary to what we just said until now, that we apply the principle of Gershin is Dami, we say it does not apply in this case. And there are those who infer from Rashi that if we would apply the principle, there would be no, no relationship of brothers, and therefore they conclude the exact opposite, that birth does not create this relationship, and therefore they conclude the maternity depends upon the genetic mother and not upon the birth mother. You see how Lachas can joust and arrive at opposite conclusions not only from Agatic material but even from Halachic material. It seems to me, however, that Rashi said we do not apply this principle of Gersh and Isgarek and not for the reasons that were given by these Halachists but for a different reason. What's that? If Kotn Shinol Adami, there's no proof that Rachmana Afkare Lazare. There's no proof that the Torah cuts off any relationship between a Jewish 
father and a non-Jewish mother. Why? Even if that would not be the case, lo chotzev lo miyavim. Why? Because Gershon is Gershon. So Rashi is forced to introduce that we do not apply that principle to arrive at the conclusion which the Gemara is trying to arrive at of Rachmana after Elazari. And therefore, my personal view is that both Halach camps who try to prove one way or the other from this Gemara are incorrect. Sorry. And there's no proof whatsoever based upon Rashi in either direction. So we're left where we started. So there's one more Halach source I'll get to, which is source number nine, which, uh, with an elaboration of source number ten. That's as follows. Source number nine tells us another Gemara in A woman converted while she's pregnant, but not ain't Sarah there's no need to perform an additional immersion in the mikvah on that on that child that's born. Says the Gemara, "Am I ain't Sarah Tvila? Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't there? After all, this was this child was conceived in a non-Jewish mother." I kulo chotet. The Gemara is suggesting that when the mother immersed in the mikvah, that immersion counted not only for her, but counted for the fetus in the womb as well. But after all, the mother's body is a chatzitza, an interruption. The Gemara says no. Shani uba So in fact, the Gemara seems to be saying that the way that the conversion takes place in the child is by the mother's immersion which counts not only for the mother, but counts for the child as well. Correct? I have a Shiloh to ask everyone in the audience. Who needs this? Why don't we just say that since this child was born to a Jewish mother, by definition, the child is Jewish. Aha! So I want to prove from this Gemara the opposite. That in fact we follow the genetic mother and that's why merely coming out of the womb at nine months from a Jewish mother is insufficient to confer Jewishness upon the baby. That's clear in this communic statement. It's black and white. You have to resort to the immersion of the mother. This to me indicates that the birth mother is not the mother and therefore let's assume for the moment that every child has one mother. That's not to be assumed. There were those who said that she has a child can have two mothers, as we shall get to, or no mothers. Whatever. Brave new world. But I'm an old-fashioned Jew. One mother. So if it can't be the birth mother, by definition, it has to be the genetic mother. That's my proof. However, this proof is not 100%. You have to have intellectual honesty over here. Not 100%. There are those who have a quite a remarkable way of, of thinking way of thinking and that's based upon source number 9 excuse me number 10 which is the words of the Ramban the Ramban has something which is very very problematic the Ramban has found earlier in, in Yavamas which says Misrape if you do the Mila on a prospective convert Matvila also Miyak so you have to wait as long as it takes you have to ask a urologist who does an adult circumcision how long will it take for the person to heal 
before being able to immerse that individual in the victim. Can take who knows a week? I don't know how long it can take. Wait a minute. Just switch the order around. Then you can become a Jew a week earlier. Right now, it's almost Pesach. I want to get in there, you know, to bring a cup of Pesach. And they say, oh, 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 oh. Just switch the order around. Rabbani asked that question. Trihani. Lama Mashin also. Yafilu, Tchila, Umiyad, Yomam. What's the problem? You save, you save so much time. Sheva Mitzvah, Lama, Yachakach, Litvah. It's a mitzvah to do in that direction. Inami. Kevin Shamila Koshalov, Molanoso Tchila, Veshimdata, Nokho Yifrosh. Aha. Mila is much harder than Tchila, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's much easier to go into a pool of water and to be circumcised as an adult. So we want to, you know, separate the men from the men and make sure he really wants to go through with it. So he goes with the meal first. If he chickens out, uh, let him chicken out then. Okay. Meal! In total, Yachakach Mol, he switched the order around. Harei Zeger. Ramban is saying a Chinish Niflo. And if you order, if you switch the order around, it's valid. Most authorities disagree with the Ramban. Say, no. You have to have the circumcision first. That removes the Ola, the, the negative, negativity associated with his being non-Jewish. And then complete the process with the Tevila, which adds the sanctity of being Jewish. That's the, that's the prevailing view in Halakha. But the Rabban was one of the greatest Halakhists ever. So although we don't follow him normatively, we can't disregard what he says. An amazing Kiddush. How does he know it's true? Teda. It says in Abayim Ches, source number nine, Kiyores Muberes Shetavla, Benayim Tzara Tvila, Varekadma Tvila Lemilasalam Zacharu. Wow. Unbelievable. The Ramban is saying that this child who is a product of a woman who converted while she's pregnant is not born Jewish at all. No. No. If it's a female, she's born Jewish because she had the immersion of her mother. But if it's a male, the child is not Jewish until what? They have the brismila and the brismila can come after the tefillah. This is all an unbelievable interpretation of Marenu Rabbeinu Ramban. That's quite amazing. Incredible. The problem was becomes that that is so difficult. It seems clear that this child is born Jewish. We learn in Bechoros is an obligation of Pinyon HaBen for such a child. How can it be an obligation of Pinyon HaBen if the child is not born Jewish? It's an impossibility. So how can the Ramban be against the Mishnah, Gemara, in the Sept of Bechoros? There are other sources in Shas. So there is a, how should I say it? A very radical interpretation given by a number of Achronim, which tell us that being Jewish is not a binary proposition, yes or no. You, this child is born Jewish, but you need an additional conversion to achieve what we we'll call the sanctity of being Jewish, what's called kedusha Yisrael. And were it not for the fact that the mother is not an interruption. The child will require an additional tefillah. Why? Because the uh, if that's the case, 
there would be a level of Jewishness even without a subsequent Mila or a subsequent Tvila. If this, what I call wild theory is true, my proof is rejected. Because if that's the case, even according to this opinion, uh, which again based upon the Rabban, the child is born Jewish merely based upon the fact that she's carried and given birth to by a Jewish mother and the, the additional level of having been the child, him or herself, immersed in water with the lack of, inter- of an interruption of the mother is only to give it an additional level of Kedusha Sisrael. Again, although I've said Europe based upon this, we'll call this, to give the expression, Yeshiva Shereid, you'll find in the Kedusha of Naftali Trump, those another Kedusha Granat, and other Dolomanatav, and myself, I've also, I've partaken in the Yeshiva enterprise, but normatively, from a purely halakhic perspective, it's a little bit avant-garde. And therefore, what do you do? But the Ramban is the Ramban. You can't just, uh, you can't just, you have, to have a, you have to have an answer. It's against the Gemara. I believe that the correct answer is based upon yet another halachist. Another halachist. Again, the, the Rashma says that the Gemara Yanayan Ches is limited to a female. The Ramban said, it should have said the last line in source number 10. It should have said, Well, the Rashba says that's what it means. That's also a very big Kiddush. Also a big Kiddush. You see that the child is, is Jewish from birth from two sources. The Bechoros, the high opinion of Ben, and from source number 6 and 7. That is the Chiv of Ashes Ach in this case. So what do you do? How can the Rabban be against two Gemaras? The answer, I believe, is based upon the stipler, the famous Gehilas Yaakov, the giant of Halacha, from uh, the earlier part of the 20th century. He says, this it depends, the Gemara of Ayin Chesam and Aleph, I didn't quote you the entire uh, earlier part because there's lack of space, on a dispute by the Uber Yerech Imo or Uber Lav Yerech Imo. To review a fetus as literally the, the hip of the mother, or not. So he suggests that the dispute in the Gemara, if that's the case, the child is not a, uh, 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 does not become Jewish based upon the mother's conversion, requiring a new conversion, that's true, only according to the opinion of Uber Lav Yerechimo, but based upon the Gemara and Tzadiches and the Gemara and Bechoros, we have to pass again that Uber is so then according to the Ramban there's no proof again in either direction however according to the normative view that you have to have Mila before Tvila then the Gemara seems to prove in one direction it depends upon the genetic mother now Halacha I've dealt with this in two different cases I actually had one amazing scene in the Riverdale Mikvah I dealt the same day with two opposite cases. You're not going to believe it. It's hard to believe, but it's true. I had one couple where there was a donor egg who was not Jewish, and they came to do what we call the gay risk just to play it safe. And my view is, view is much more than just to play it safe. For their, they were actually twins in that case. Another case was the opposite. 
the woman had eggs of her own, but she wasn't able to carry. And she took advantage of something which is called surrogacy. It's very hard to find a surrogate with a non-Jewish surrogate. If I'm correct, fundamentally that child really is Jewish. But since I'm not sure, no one's sure until the Shia comes what's going to be over here, I required a conversion there as well. And they were both in the mix with the same thing. Presumably one of those conversions was not required. We didn't make a brop on any of them. We don't make a brop in general on a Gerkot for other reasons. But isn't it amazing where we're living? Amazing where we're living. In any event, this is the issue of identifying maternity. It's, it's, I used to think this is the brave new world until Dr. Klein taught us so many more new things. Let me comment therefore on, on his presentation uh, briefly. Number one, medical ethics is a term which is used. They call it Jewish medical ethics, halakhic medical ethics. I believe that we have a responsibility to take care of everyone who was born and anyone who we bring into this world. A strong responsibility. I believe that if an individual knows they're going to bring into this world children who are stricken with serious diseases, who might be unfortunately doomed to die at a young age, it is prohibited to bring those people into this world. That may sound like a very strong statement, but I believe it firmly. A Jew may not cause pain or inflict pain on another Jew. Can you imagine how much pain you're inflicting if you bring a child into this world who is doomed to have one of these very serious diseases? Let's say, for example, as the case was described earlier, the couple find out they're both Pesach's card. We'll play Russian roulette. After all, three out of four of our kids are going to be healthy, statistically. In my view, it's a very serious question whether you're allowed to even en- enter into that Russian roulette game. Because if you have, you can have the first child already be stricken with that, which is a total disaster. The amount of pain that this child suffers, as well as the parents suffer, is indescribable. Indescribable. We can't believe it. Now today, it's been mostly eliminated by Dorya Sharm, to the great credit of Rabbi Eckstein, who suffered so many, he had himself so many Tasex children, that it's just crazy. I remember when my children were very young, we went to a pediatrician, his name was Dr. Grimmins, Sephora Laracha, who was practicing at Mount Sinai, and he would get all these children from Williamsburg, he's going crazy. And he was going to Rabbi Shechdash, we had children the same age. He rabbis, find me a solution. Can you permit abortions in these cases? Something or other. We said to him, find a way to, to, to determine the tasks before 40 days. Maybe we can find some kind of, they found something for a while, it's called CVS. But they prohibited doing it too early. They were taking off fingers in the, by mistake. A whole history about this. I believe to bring such a child into the world is prohibited. Not as a solution. IVF, PGD. So now you'll say, let a couple get married if they're both Tay-Sex carriers and they use IVF and PGD. In my opinion, prohibited. IVF and PGD is what I call Bishas Atchak, when you're stuck and there's no alternative. It may be true in certain dominant cases. Fragile X, for example. A person who carries fragile X, they shouldn't be able to get married? So they should, they should get married, they should have children with IVF and PGD. I'm involved in a case. There were two sisters, both married students. The first one, the, the you know, called the repeat, that's the right word, were low enough that they could take their chances, show have healthy babies. The younger sister was too iffy, and 
Baruch Hashem, they had a healthy child with IVF and PGD. Husband and wife. If it was fragile X, they just knocked it out. Nonetheless, there is no alternative. She had no alternative. But two people, Reuben and Rachel, they can each marry somebody else. Why should they put themselves in a situation where their whole lives have to be worried about first contraception and then IVF and PGD? That's just a matter of expense and, 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 and you call energy. It's much more than that. Their whole lives are, are, are not normal. They can't live together in a normal fashion, procreate in a normal fashion. At the beginning of it, they're married already. So Darius cuts it off at the pass. We live in an enlightened yeshiva university world where they don't always go to Darius Sharon. Ironically, we can suffer these problems which they in Williamsburg don't. But that's a paradox. Torah Mada is suffering where Torah Buli Mada has found a way to get around it. It's uh, one of the ironies of the world. But, it, but I do say, don't get married in the first place, if you find out. Do your genetic testing, whether it be Darius Sharon or the o- or open testing, which has been advocated in our yeshiva. And don't get married. Marry somebody else. I don't approve. You're married already. Different story. It's called BDM. Let me go back to uh, a, a final note. By bearing responsibility not to bring to the best of our knowledge and our ability a deficient child into the world, we heard at the very beginning from Dr. Klein, your choice of a marriage partner is the first selection. The very first selection because people often follow their parents not so simple to marry somebody when that somebody tells you in advance I can't have children of my own I'm going to have to have a donor egg I happen to be the rabbi for something called Soya with Sinai have you ever heard of with Sinai? It's, uh, so there's something called Why You Connect it's a subdivision so the shires usually come to me just last week someone did the head of the well, his name is Mark Goldberg calls me up a woman who cannot have no eggs of her own when must she tell a, a boy that she has this condition? Before they meet or after they meet? That's not a simple question. That's not a simple question. This is not like someone who has diabetes, which is also a serious problem, and in a certain sense it's more serious as far as the mate, him or herself, are concerned. Comes to diabetes, I've said from the beginning, you don't have to tell until you're what I call halfway through. It's like a radioactive half-life, you know. <laughs> in certain parts of Brooklyn, maybe after two days. Not in YU. So, um, so... That's what I feel. Give them a chance to know each other. And then, you know, tell the truth. If they want to separate, they separate. Here, it's a little bit more. It's, it's, it, although it doesn't affect the, the, the woman's health at all. She can live to 120. But having children is an integral part of marriage. I thought about it. And I gave a leniency that she does not have to say at the beginning. She shouldn't wait halfway. After a couple of dates, you got to tell her. And of course, what's going to happen? They're going to come back to me and scream at me. Why did you allow my son to go out with a girl you knew in advance that he had? She has to marry somebody. Maybe there are boys out there who will be willing to marry someone when they either have to reproduce with IVF PGD or you will have to reproduce with donor eggs. There's possibilities of Jewish donor eggs. Uh, I'm not going into all the details right now of, of, of the, who should the donor should be. This ex- give an example of how these questions come very, very serious. We have, therefore, responsibility to see to, to the best of our knowledge and our ability not to produce children that we know that have a, a chance of being somewhat blemished. I will discuss, finally, the brave new world that's out there in terms of the, the uh, intervention, the first intervention. The second, with the CRISPR, that is also something which I believe 
would be permissible when the technology allows. To my knowledge, it's not being done anywhere in the world right now. So it's so far science fiction. I would say that if it would be safe, it might almost be mandatory in terms of removing deficits. I'm not saying you want a 2020 vision, I'm not discussing a high IQ. I'm not discussing that. I'm discussing serious problems should be detected. I have to tell you, I'm quoting now from pre-publication. Uh, we have one of the greatest medical experts uh, in, in the world, in our yeshiva, Rabbi Blythe Shalita, who's well known for all his tremendous writings. Uh, we spoke to him about it on Thursday, about this very, he told me it's coming out with an article about this in Tradition. Next edition of Tradition magazine. I saw it pre-publication. I can't go into all the details. It hasn't been published yet. You'll see it if you're interested in this topic. But there he says that we have to be very careful and safe. But at the same time, we can be proven wrong. He candidly admits, he refers to himself as this writer himself, he was very, very much opposed at the beginning to IVF in general. Science fiction. Then he says, there are more than 5 million babies in the, in the world who have been born to IVF safely. So he says he's saying he may be proven wrong about CRISPR also. But he does say we have an obligation to try to see whether our babies are healthy. So if CRISPR becomes safe, he's in effect admitting something that should be used. But this idea of the uh, three parents on mitochondrial donation is not science fiction. It's been done. And in England, I believe it's still being done. In America, they forbade it. It's being done in England. And frankly, my initial introduction to this concept came from precisely what Dr. Klein was talking about. <laughs> we spoke about freezing eggs a few times together. A woman's getting older, she's 30-something, and she hasn't found a husband yet, and she's afraid she waits until she finds them, so her eggs will be too old, she'll have no children. Freeze the eggs, and Mr. Shem, you'll find Mr. Wright, when you're 45, and your eggs now will, will no longer be, you have your 35-year-old eggs in the freezer, and the, the husband is 50, and you have no problem having 10 children. No problem. Why? Whatever, certainly two children. So, so that could be done. But there's another idea. When they, when a woman gets older, her eggs are less vi- vital and, and they won't work. Presumably, again, I'm not a, a doctor. This is Dr. Farmer will address the detail. Presumably, it's not the nucleus that's dysfunctional. Rather, it's the mitochondrial part that's dysfunctional. And they had this idea of merging the woman's nucleus, which has the overwhelming majority of the traits that are passed to the next generation with what they used to call the plasma the aroma and aroma the almost almost inert material almost I'm very careful that's around because you take it from a much younger woman I said to myself if that can happen that's a great idea before they have freezing eggs to solve this problem potentially but turns out there is a little DNA in this act in this part of the heard before so that's where the idea of the three parent uh, concept came from in this article, Rabbi Blythe, he takes issue with another expert known internationally on medical ethics. His name is Rabbi Usher Weiss. Rabbi Usher Weiss is a rabbi, very distinguished Talmud Chacham in Yerushalayim. He's now the, uh, the go-to person in Shari Tzedek Hospital and has written extensively from his perspective. And they fought, they're fighting it out on the topic of is it possible to have more than two parents? Is it a possibility? Rabbi Weiss says, no. Frankly, I would sympathize with that position myself. There's one father, there's one mother, you can't, you can't have more than that, that's crazy. That's just a sort of a common sense 
Torah tuition that I have, which Rabbi Weiss had as well. And therefore he wrote, when he was asked this precise question, nucleus from Rachel, and mitochondria from Leah, who was the mother? And he said, Rachel. Because almost all the DNA comes from Rachel, something comes from Leah, it's bottle barrel, but everyone is saying, not going into strict halachic concepts of Dover, intuitively, has to be one thing, it has to be Rachel. So Rabbi Bleich responds fascinatingly. Rabbi Bleich is the one who said, you cannot derive anything from the agadic material of sources one, two, three, all those original sources, because they are, how should we say it, they are agadic in nature, and agadic material can't be used. Nonetheless, he disproves Rabbi Weiss from what I consider to be agadic material, which is the final source, source number 11. In source number 11, a remarkable idea, whole story about an agadita found in the third line of source 11. What does that mean? You know, there's a famous becoming now to Pesach into Shavuos, right? And Rus stayed the course and Alpha left. So Chazal say that Rus ended up being the uh, ancestress of David Amalek and Alpha of Goliath. And Chazal say that when, when Alpha left, she had a fling, if you will. And lived with a hundred men. Maya Oros Pishtim. Okay? hundred men. And the Gemara tells us that the Agarita, so Agarita, says the Ferris tells us, it's Rabbana da Agarita. So, Aisha Misaberes Mishnei Bnei Adam Kiyachas. So Goyas had a hundred, a hundred fathers. So my blacks, as you see from here, could be more than two parents. Which I say back to him, you said you can't learn from Agarita. I, this is a, this is a wild ago. I, I think it's biologically completely impossible. Uh, I, I don't see any way this can happen. But just to show you how great rabbinic minds can joust about major halakhic issues which are relevant today. I close with this. We should all be blessed with being able to produce wonderful children naturally. And we should also be blessed, Claudius worldwide, that if there are situations where they, we cannot do that, that the wonderful technologies of modern medicine should be able to help us in a proper halakhic fashion. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we'll be benching in a few minutes together. Uh, we will take a few minutes of questions if anybody wants. If you do have to leave, though, uh, please leave quietly so everybody can hear the questions and the answers. If you do have a question, you have to say it really loudly. Um, and then if you do have the votes that you voted for, for the uh, building repair uh, outside, you can please give it to the gentleman in the back of the room. Um, anybody have any questions? Yes, no? No, I think we addressed, uh, it looks like they're doing private questions. Okay, private questions. Uh, one closing remark here. Uh, just quickly mentioning some thank yous uh, for today. Um, obviously, thank you so much to Rabbi Willig and Dr. Klein for taking time out of their tremendously busy schedules to come here and speak to us today. Uh, thank you so much to Rabbi Tanto Kaya, Rabbi Mordechai Schiffman, and everybody here at the Kingsway Jewish Center for playing such gracious hosts for us. Um, 
also thank you, even though they couldn't be here today, to Rabbi Aryeh Charka and to Rabbi Dr. Edward Breitman of the Center for the Jewish Future um, for their tremendous help and guidance on planning this program. Um, and lastly, thank you to you for showing up and help making this program what it was. Thank you so much. Thank you.